Welcome to the Women's Health Podcast. I'm Marika Hart from Herosphere. And I'm Anthony Lowe, the physio detective. Together we interview leading authorities, answer questions, and share our thoughts to provide the general public with the best quality information we can find on all aspects of women's health. Please remember the materials and content on this podcast are intended as general information and for entertainment purposes only. They are not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Now it's time to get cracking with the episode, so whether you're out walking your dog, driving the kids to school, or just sitting back enjoying a glass of wine, we hope you enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Women's Health Podcast. Marika Hart here with my co-host, Anthony Lowe, the physio detective. G'day, Anthony. How are you? Well, thanks, Marika. Nice to be back. Excellent. Um, So today we've actually got a dynamic duo. We've got two guests who are dialing in from, um, from Melbourne. Now, I knew Mr. Adam Culvener, gosh, 10 years ago. We met 10 years ago, I think. At Alphington School like of Medicine, that. yeah, <laughs> um, as a as a relatively young physio who was out to change the world when it comes to ACL rehab, and I still remember one of your presentations that you did, and I feel like you had this slide that had something like ACL is like the sexiest inch of a sporting person's body or something something like that. <laughs> it still sort of rings true. Um, but at, at, sorry, Anthony and I wanted to have someone to come on the podcast and talk about ACLs, ACL injury, ACL rehab. And then in particular, we wanted to know how are women different to men? Like, do they have, they seem to have more injuries? Why is this? What do we know? So Hay has brought one of his um, colleagues in as well, Dr. Andrea Bruder, and I'm going to get Anthony to do a bit of an intro for both, but we just, we're so excited today because we've got two amazing um, guests who are going to really try and give us a really broad overview of what's going on in the latest in ACL research. And um, yeah, we're very excited. Yeah. So I'm just going to read out your, uh, your bios. So Adam is a physiotherapist and research fellow at the Latrobe University Sport and Exercise Medicine Research Centre. Australia. He has a combined clinical career in sports medicine together with research investigating prevention, management and long-term outcomes of sports-related injuries and lifespan osteoarthritis. He has a particular interest in anterior cruciate ligament, ACL injuries, in optimizing return to sport, identifying risk factors for poor long-term outcomes and developing and testing novel osteoarthritis prevention strategies. Adam has written more than 50 publications on the subject of ACL injuries and osteoarthritis, has been invited to speak at numerous international conferences, and is currently leading the first clinical trial in the prevention of osteoarthritis in young adults following ACL injury. Welcome to the podcast, Adam. Thank you, Anthony and Marika. It's great to be here and share some some research and clinical experience in the ACL space. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, it's 50 awesome. articles there. 50. Uh, yeah, a, I think they've leased over, that now, yeah. Over That's 50. You're a pretty prolific researcher. <laughs> There's lots to find out. There's lots to find out for sure. Looking forward to hearing actually lots lots more from you. And with uh, Adam today, we've got Dr. Andrea Bruder. Andrea is a physiotherapist, a lecturer in physiotherapy at La Trobe University and postdoctoral research fellow in the La Trobe Sport and Exercise Medicine Research Centre. 
Her research focuses on improving injury prevention and rehabilitation practices after musculoskeletal injuries. Andrea has a particular interest in reducing the risk of ACL injuries among women and girls playing Australian football. And for those who do sustain an ACL injury, how we can improve uh, rehabilitation practices to reduce long-term burden. Welcome to the podcast, Andrea. Thank you for having me. Really excited to be here. I don't have 50 publications like Adam, but uh, maybe in a few years' time. Not yet. <laughs> what, what you just said was that he's older than you. Uh. <laughs> Actually, he's not. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was just a guess. Well, you look, you look, you look younger than him. So. <laughs> Adam, Adam started writing publications when he was still in the womb, so yeah. <laughs> I think so. He writes them in his sleep. <laughs> wow, it sounds fantastic. Um, so why don't we just start with the basics? What is the ACL and how do people injure it? I'll maybe start with this one, if you like. So the ACL or the anterior cruciate ligament is a ligament essentially in the knee. It connects your tibia, so your shin bone, with your femur, your thigh bone. And it's really important um, for a lot of people with the main aim of stopping the tibia or the, the shin from shifting forward onto the femur. So in, um, in sports where you might jump around a lot and pivot, such as basketball, soccer, um, netball, those types of things that we typically play a lot of in Australia, then the ACL um, helps to stabilise the knee in that forward, backward type motion. Um, so... Yeah, it's a, it's a ligament that is unfortunately often injured as well um, in those types of sports because that's the, the, the movements of that pivoting, twisting, jumping, landing where um, some awkward positions can occur and, and for whatever reason, the ACL um, can and does tear. And obviously we'll go into to some of the risk factors and some of the, the female and male differences around that, I'm sure later on in the podcast as well. Well, that's probably a pretty good segue there, and um, Adam, <laughs> we can Great. we can pass we can pass this one on to um, on to Andrea if you like, Andrea. Um, so obviously, Adam's just talked about some of the risk factors in terms of the types of sport. Um, what are some of the intrinsic risk factors? So things within a person themselves that makes them more susceptible to injury. Yeah, it's a good question, and I want to take it away just from the intrinsic factors and say that you know particularly well. For everyone and anyone playing sport, there's a multitude of risk factors. And, and on any given day they're playing sport, their risk may be different um, and that there'll be some of them will be modifiable. Um, you know, if we're thinking about even the environment, their playing history, their neuromuscular pattern, their strength, um, potentially even their footwear, their sleep. You know, there's a lot of um, factors that we actually don't know the answers to yet. And hopefully we will uncover them over the years to come as well as then the non-modifiable factors. And, and one of them that you've already alluded to, and that is female sex, and that um, being a female uh, increases your risk of sustaining an ACL injury. Um, you know, there's probably a few that we know um, increase risk, and female sex is one of them. Um, so is family history of previous ACL injury. So if you've got a mother or a sister that's had an ACL injury, that may increase your risk. Um, and um, Adam, did you want to add any others? 
that come to mind from the evidence? Yeah, so some of the, a little bit of evidence suggesting some of the way people move, you know, particularly in those high dynamic type sports, which may increase the risk of an ACL injury. Um, but also I think one of the main ones is uh, if you've had one ACL injury, then that's a really strong risk factor for having another one, unfortunately, which is a really um, critical information for us as, as clinicians and physios to make sure we rehabilitate these people who have had that initial ACL injury, whether or not they go and have reconstruction, which, you know, that's a whole another conversation, which I'm sure we'll touch on later as well, um, is to really make sure we're, we're doing these people justice to prevent further injuries down the track, because that's obviously de devastating for the athletes and, and family and coaches and teammates, et cetera, as well. And if we're thinking about sports as well, playing a contact sport would be more high risk than, say, um, having no contact in a sport or um, it's high speeds. You know, we need to rapidly change direction so they will increase the risk of an ACL injury, like Australian football. Yes, and you know, there's been lots of um, lots of great research in involving AFL, and um, and no doubt you've contributed to that, which is uh, sensational. The the you know, around the world, when I talk to different trainers and coaches, as well as uh, health and fitness professionals, a lot of focus is put onto things like, oh, you know, their glute med and, and don't let that knee cave in and um, a lot of the movement pattern stuff. And there's a lot of confusion about well, what is the chicken and the egg? Do they move this way because they're not strong enough? Or do they move this way um, because that's how they're built to move and we're trying to fit um, a square peg into a round hole. Can you, can you talk about some of the, I suppose, the teasing out of what leads to what and, and because, you know, for example, I'm a netball coach. So I taught the girls to land and the way that I frame it is that, Hey, your knee moves in when you land like this, this may or may not increase your risk of doing an injury. You're already good at doing it this way. What if you did it this way as well? Because um, I'm, you know, I'm really conscious about increasing the fear of this type of movement. Uh, can you speak to some of the the, the combining of the research and, and understanding correlation doesn't equal causation, as well as um, where things are at in research land, as well as the clinical. Uh, I suppose, the plausible reasons as to why we're doing what we're doing. Yeah, it's some really great questions in there and it's quite complicated, obviously, as you sort of alluded to. So I'm not going to have all the perfect answers for you, unfortunately. And there is, you now there's a bit of controversy in the literature as well around, you know, the, the movement patterns, um, which you talked about, you know, the knee falling inwards when we land, whether that actually is a, a strong risk factor for developing or sustaining an ACL injury. Um, I would say though, that when we look at injury prevention programs, that often these types of programs actually include movement control retraining and strengthening. And we know that these programs are, um, are very beneficial. So they can reduce ACL injury rates by about 50%. So I'd be wary of telling someone who doesn't have pain and doesn't have any knee issues but they're moving in the incorrect way. Um, we have to also be mindful that if we start changing people's uh, movement patterns, we need to make sure we're not overloading 
other tissues, you know, whether it be hip or ankle or, or elsewhere in the knee and causing pain and, and tissue strain and issues um, that might be good for the ACL, but, but detrimental for the other parts of the body. Um, yeah, so I think it's a complex area. I don't have the right answer. I think it's, um, we can, you, know, you see people move, particularly in the first couple of seasons of, you know, the AFLW where the women's football are getting a lot more exposure where you're sort of seeing some, some of the young girls who haven't had a lot of experience in the strength from the gym and the years of training with football, that some of their movement looks a little bit cringeworthy, that you feel like that knee is going to give way each time they're turning and, and evading an opponent. And I think that um, has got better with more exposure to sport and strengthening and experience with the game. And I think that's um, hopefully going to bear, bear fruit in terms of the reduction of these major knee injuries, for example, in the future. Um, but it is a really... Uh, complex area and I think clinically it's really difficult to and almost impossible to tell someone the way that you move means that you're going to have an ACL injury we don't have that amount of predictive ability at the moment we sort of can tell people that you might increase your risk a little bit um, but the the evidence is still a little bit mixed on that as well. Can I follow on there though, um, Anthony, the work that you're doing with the younger netballers is, is great. And I think that's a good message to actually start the injury prevention programs with our younger female um, athletes. And certainly there is evidence growing out there to say that that can be our population where it might have the most benefit. Um, and those certainly that adhere to the programs uh, will have even a better benefit than those who might not be either completing the exercises to the sort of to the way that we intend them to be performed and or and all the frequency and duration as well. Just um, following on from that, Andrea. So um, in the for those that are international who probably don't even know what netball is, um, it's a bit like basketball, except it's you stop a lot more. <laughs> it's very stop start. It's it's quite it's quite traumatic. Um, but no, so you, the ball. You can't bounce the ball over and you have to stay in separate parts of the of the um, court. So in in uh, within Netball Australia, obviously there was an introduction of the knee program, which was, mm -hmm. is that going back five years maybe? Yeah, and it's, look, and all the resources are really widely available. So it's a great resource for clinicians. And I think they've got quite a few programs now, depending on the level of skill of your athletes as well. Um, so yeah, the Netball Knee has your recreational or way up to your elite um, athletes. So this is a program for coaches as well as physiotherapists. And you can go through a, a process of being registered and, um, yeah. and being able to teach the girls how to land, change directions, how to warm up before a game. And a lot of that sort of neuromuscular retraining kind of stuff. I'm just curious as to whether this exists in other sports. Um, so for instance, soccer and obviously AFLW, you know, we're talking about a lot at the moment because so for those overseas, Australian rules football, which has obviously been massive in the men's realm for a long time. Over the past few years, we've had this amazing growth in women's AFL. Uh, it has been so good to watch. Like, honestly, I, to be honest, sometimes I think it's more exciting to watch than yeah. the men's. Um, and probably because I'm a Dockers fan and we only lost our first game last week. But we, you know, it's been so exciting to watch, but obviously this is something that we've, we've realized, I think there was about four ACL injuries a week or something last year. 
Um, so we, it's getting a lot of popular press talking about, well, why are, why are women having more injuries? So I guess I have two questions for you. you. You alluded to the fact that we are more susceptible. So I wanted to know from the research perspective, I know we, I know there's so much, we don't know how much is hormonal, how much is of it is, um, you know, biomechanical and what, what are these, whether it's the amount of training and exposure to different sports, et cetera. So I just want to see if you could give me a suggest on that. And also just to understand whether there are other programs similar to the knee program in other sports. Yeah. Um, I'll start with your second one because there are a lot of programs available and programs that have shown to be effective in reducing ACL injuries. Um, we have the, um, maybe not specifically for ACL, but it has proven to reduce knee injuries is FIFA 11 plus, which would be for our soccer or European um, listeners of the football. And there's a lot of um, evidence now and spanning um, all age groups, elite to community. And now there's a FIFA 11 plus FIFA kids as well. So again, those resources are available for coaches to use. Um, Probably the problem with FIFA 11 is that the uptake or the implementation of the program is poor. And so, we, you know, there's been a lot of work now in, in why coaches aren't adopting or might adopt it and why they use it or might not follow it the way that it's prescribed. You know, there are elements of FIFA 11, like the hamstring exercise in particular is not implemented a lot with, um, with their teams and working out, well, why is that? And um, Matt Whalen, who you might know, is a physiotherapist in New South Wales. He has been working on um, injury prevention with his PhD and has published a study now looking at, well, if we manipulate the timing of parts of FIFA 11, um, does that increase adherence rate? And can we still have uh, the benefit of injury reduction, which he has? So the strengthening component of the FIFA 11 plus, they now um, implement or he, his trial was to implement it at the end of training. And then there was an increased use of FIFA 11 plus, but still able to maintain um, injury benefit, the injury risk benefit as well. So we are, so FIFA 11 plus would be one, um, you know, for our community footballers, Australian football, um, we have footy first and that's been around for a long time. Um, and that was developed off uh, an RCT from Carolyn Finch and Alex Donaldson's work. Um, and again, all the resources are available through the AFL community hub on their website as well. Um, again, they, uh, it was, there was a lot of money that went into developing that project. It was rolled out with the sort of supported implementation program and not. And again, it's just that, that translation of using it and using it the way it was designed. Um, there's still, uh, it's still not working so well. So there's a dis disconnection there. And that's probably where, where we're at with a lot of our programs is we have these great effective programs that are, can have a lot of benefit, not only reducing risk, but we also think that they have performance benefits as well, but the uptake and the sustained use and is poor, um, which is has led to us to our work that we've been doing on Prep to Play and the, the program that we've been run, uh, developing for female community footballers. Um, it started out in the elite setting, which does look different because there are different contextual factors that come into play with an elite um, setting compared to community, but then how we've engaged and uh, engaged with key stakeholders. So the people that are gonna use the program, the players themselves in helping to develop the program so that we hope that it can have real world translation. Um, and so that's one of the exciting projects that we have running at the moment. Um, sorry, just to go back to the other programs, 
the neck control and the knee control developed by um, Martin Hagland in Sweden. Um, they have shown effectiveness in soccer. So uh, European, European, would know, uh, European listeners would know it as football. Um, we also have sports metrics, the perform enhancement, um, perform enhancement program, which is the PEP for basketball and volleyball. There's also programs for um, handball. There's also the Olympic Committee have, a, have an app as well. And the name escapes me at the moment. So I'll have to have a little look up again, but covers a lot of different sports, even tennis, um, where you can download, watch video resources. So the coaches can use them with their players. The players can watch them, practice it with their team um, to help then you know, refine their skills and their movement patterns as well. So yeah. there's a lot out there actually, and probably people don't realize how many resources and programs there are out there, but yet we're not using them. Yeah, and, and what's really interesting is that I don't hear about these programs unless you go looking for them, right? Mm -hmm. um, but every strength and conditioning coach has got an idea of what their ideal program is um, and not always based on the research. And uh, one of the points that I wanted to raise was what you said, um, the translation of all of this good stuff, for example, the FIFA 11 plus literally two weeks ago had somebody who was on the verge of doing a rupture of their Achilles. He felt something. I just checked real quick. I'm a real time ultrasound. It's like, I don't like the look of it. Sent him to the sports med doc. Wow. It's so close to a rupture of his tendon. He tore a bit at the muscular tendinous junction. And it was, you know, it was extending into there, right? Like he was so close. And um, so I, I told him about FIFA 11 plus. His parents are in, the, uh, are in the hierarchy of the club. And it's like, talk to your coach about 11 plus. Look, it's free. You just, you know, here's all this stuff. And he's like, oh, and they're like, never seen this before. This is great, but still hasn't implemented it. And, and he's like, oh, you know, it's, it's hard because you need somebody to do some of the stuff. And I'm like, but you've got to talk to the coach about it. It's almost like part of the programs need to have a workshop section so that people go, how, here are some of the ways that you could put this into practice. I don't know if it's in there. It wasn't in there the last time I looked, but I first saw FIFA 11 plus years ago. Um, do you have any ideas of what seems to work? I liked how you said, at the end of training was really, really helpful. Any other practical things that you've seen work um, and how even at the club level, the recreational level, where they may not have a dedicated strength and conditioning coach or physio who understands this stuff, what are some of the things that seem to be helpful? Um, if we, because we're talking a little bit about FIFA 11 plus and perhaps it's a program that's, you know, it is accessible. But it's also, um, it's not complicated. And the exercises aren't complex. They are simple. And the it comes with a manual as well with simple instructions. So I think it's part of also getting the message out that coaches, can, they can have the skills to actually get their players to do it. Or perhaps they can give ownership to players and, and the leaders of the club. Um, or the leaders of the team, the leadership group, to actually take ownership and run through the exercises because the idea of the FIFA 11 Plus is to replace your warm-up component. Um, it's a dynamic warm-up, preparing them for preparing the team for exercise. 
Um, so it, it's, it's there and ready to go. And I suppose it is overcoming that barrier and empowering people to know that they can actually, it, it's, they can actually run with it. Um, and I know that when it was rolled out, and a lot of these programs have been rolled out with coaches support workshops or not, and I think that that also does help. And, and I'd like to see the physiotherapists, our local physiotherapists, take a role and have a real play in injury prevention. And, and certainly they can actually offer a lot to these clubs in helping just to run through a workshop or run through the exercises with them and then maybe even checking with them again in a few weeks' time to, um, to see how they're going. And sometimes that might just be even a telephone conversation to answer a few little questions to get around things. And that's a great segue to actually a, a large research project we're currently uh, in looking to uh, roll out in partnership with the AFLW actually um, and Medibank and the Australian Physio Association and a number of other partners in community women's and girls football where we're doing exactly what Andrea sort of spoke about to try and overcome some of these implementation barriers by working with physios and local physios to, to go to clubs and partner with clubs to, to deliver coach workshops and not just to make it something that's going to happen during the study, but make it sustainable. So what can we embed in these community level clubs, just as you were saying, Anthony, that will, that will um, mean that it's something that's done ongoing and through the generations for, for particularly women and girls who, as we know, are, are much higher risk of, of these large ACL injuries. Just so if, if, anyone, if, anyone listen, if anyone listening is a community level female football player or a coach or a manager or any sort of sports trainer, any involvement whatsoever, we're very keen to hear from you at the moment. We're starting, setting up the study to, to take place in this community football season, 2021, and then again in 2022. Um, in Australia? And they can contact us in, a, in Victoria. In Victoria. Oh, in Victoria. Oh. Right. I've yeah. got okay. a bunch in WA. Yeah, <laughs> just, just in Victoria just, for now, but we're hoping to roll it out nationally following the couple of years we're doing it here. Cool. Our biggest audience is overseas, but for those who are listening in Victoria, we'll make sure that they spread the word as well. Um, you, you just offhandedly almost, you said that uh, females have a much higher risk of injury. Did you? Can you just clarify that? Because that sounds pretty scary to me. Yeah, so I'll give a quick, and then Andrew will have much more information to provide here <laughs> on this topic. But I, um, the literature suggests that in general, girls and women have about a three times higher risk of having an ACL injury than boys and men. So typically we see more males with an ACL injury, but that's purely because more men typically and boys play sport or have historically. And it's really interesting as sports um, participation in female athletes starts to become more common and particularly in Victoria and Australia with the AFLW really pushing the women's game forward which is fantastic. We've in the first few seasons as I'm sure you're all aware we've really noticed a, a large spike in in female athletes having an ACL injury and I think Andrew will correct me but I think there's about a six to eight times higher rate of ACLs comparatively compared to the women to the AFL players in the men. So there's some serious work that needs to be done to try and bring that number down. Um, and I'm sure, Andrew, you've got lots of things to add, add to that. Um, no, I was just also going to, if we're going to ex extrapolate and talk about sport in general, but there was definitely a systematic review a couple of years ago now by Alicia Montelvo and her colleagues. And they looked at, you know, sort of the window of one season. So I think it was about 25 years. And 
in sport in general, you had an injury risk um, of I think it was about one in 30, around that one in 30. And then for, for men, it was one in 50, but for women, it was higher. It was still around um, one in 29 for females, one in 50 for men. Um, so they did, and one in 36 athletes in general. So women did have a higher risk of any sport. Um, and then when you look at contact sports and the ones like AFL and soccer, basketball, the high, the if you're playing at the same level, women will always have a higher risk. Um, if we think about football, and I think Marika, you already alluded to it, that um, participation for Australian football has just really rapidly increased over the last few years. And it wasn't really that long ago, girls, their football participation at a competitive, it stopped at Auskick. And then there was this large gap before you could actually play in sort of senior women's and there wasn't many teams around. So for all that time, girls were moved into other sports. And so where that physical literacy and the movement patterns that you probably have been consolidating over all of those years that the, the boys have grown up to do and the rough play and, you know, the girls have missed that. And so, you know, how is, as, um, how is that then interplayed with, you know, increased risk um, among our AFLW players as well. So not just thinking about the um, internal risk factors, but also the cultural and the contextual environmental factors that have shaped that. And, um, you know, and also just keeping in mind that um, we can't compare AFLW, the elite, to the elite men's. They're, yes, it's a professional elite sport but they're actually usually part-time athletes juggling a whole myriad of of demands and that includes other employment schooling mums with young children some of them are getting pregnant and so how does that also interplay with so there's lots of other factors going on as well um, which we don't know the answers to about how that you know how they all inter interfere but so we, we can hypothesize though that they have a role to play I'm so glad you brought this up. We actually had um, in Perth, we ran a conference last weekend on the female athlete and we had um, Dr. Sophia Nymphius speak who just kind of blew the roof off the place, quite honestly. She's amazing. But she was talking she about, yeah, she's just so good. She yeah. She was talking about the skill acquisition and the differences between men and women and the bias and the research and things like that. But Mm -hmm. she really brought home the fact that a lot of the research she's like well we compare soccer players men and women and we pretend that they're the same and she's like they're not the same they have not had the same exposure they've not had the same coaching they've not had the same facilities and yeah. you know yeah. it's she's saying well if you actually give women the opportunities or girls the opportunity the same opportunities as boys and men from a younger age actually a lot of those differences disappear yeah. <laughs> and so yeah. then it becomes this I mean which I just it makes so much sense right because you know I know Anthony and I you know in particular you talk a lot about um, you know exposure to different sports offering your body um, that variability and, and ability to cope with different adaptations like you talked about getting you know getting bumped and tackled and we take that away from girls at a young age mm -hmm. um, and then we expect them to be able to do that 10 years later um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because I do think that sort of, you know, environment and social, all that sort of stuff has such a massive bearing on our participation in sport, but probably our performance as well because of that lack of exposure. Yep, I agree. I, I, 
And I'll just um, take on further that last point you said, um, Marika, is that some of these, coming back to the injury prevention programs, they're actually not just designed, or we should be encouraging the teams to do these because not just to prevent injury, but to improve performance. And I think reframing that from here's something I just have to do on the very odd chance I might get an ACL injury, you know, one out of the whole team is going to get injured in the next year. That's not going to be me. But actually reframing it to saying doing some of these exercises and getting strong is not going to just prevent potentially an injury, but it's actually going to make you a better player. And then, oh, okay, well, I'm interested now. And um, I think reframing some of how we, how we, uh, yeah, deliver these to our, to our athletes might help you know, that yeah. cross to being uh, implemented in the, in the community. And even the sell to the coaches, if you've got less injuries among your players, you have a greater list available to choose from. Um, and there's been some research now coming out as well about how the number of injured athletes and the injuries that you have and how that might translate to the success that you have um, and you're playing your wins across the season. That makes so much sense. It's, I mean, we know that as physios, it's, it's often easier to... Um, I don't want to say sell a rehab program, but, you know, basically, essentially, that's kind of a lot of what we do. But when we say this can make you run faster, jump fast, jump higher, perform better, um, is often a, a like a great incentive for people to actually do do the work that needs to be done. So, yeah, that thanks for bringing that up, Adam. That makes um, that makes a lot of sense. We probably should move on to the big old surgery versus not surgery question, which is. It's uh, very popular right now, but I think historically, like I, I worked in a knee clinic in London, we're going back sort of 15 years now. There was no question that basically if you did your ACL, you had surgery, especially if you're doing a sport that involved jumping, landing, changing direction, uh, rapid changing in direction. It was not even a question. Basically, if you've done, if you've done your ACL and in particular, if there was any other ligamental, ligamentous injury or, or meniscal injury, it was just done. And then I think it was probably when I was working at Alfington with you, Adam, and then you were obviously doing this massive lit review at the time and going, hang on a minute, <laughs> like the return to sports rates are not as good as what we think after ACL reconstruction. So if there's not a massive difference between those who have surgery versus not, why are we pushing everyone to surgery? Why aren't we kind of maybe thinking about this a lot more? And obviously there's been a lot of research since then. So I know this is a massive topic, but um, I'd love to hear from your perspective, because I think you've been like in this space for a long time. What's this journey with the sort of thought process with surgery and where are we at now? Yeah, some great questions in there and something I'm really passionate about um, as a physio in this space. So like you rightly said, historically, um, the opinion was that an ACL injury, you know, you have to go to get surgery to be able to get back to any sort of level of pivoting um, and multi-directional sport. And the evidence um, over the last probably 10 to 15 years, um, and there's particularly one large clinical trial, which is really the only um, high quality clinical trial in the world that were conducted in Sweden and originally published back in 2010 now, which have compared two different treatment programs for young people who have had an ACL injury. So the first one, they had 120 people. They split the group randomly in half. They've all had ACL injuries. One group got a, an ACL reconstruction within the first four weeks and then underwent a period of eight to nine months of rehabilitation. And the second group had exactly the same treatment with the eight to nine months of rehab, but they just didn't have the reconstruction. They had the option of having a reconstruction later 
years, months um, later in life, if they needed it from a symptomatic instability point of view or having large issues getting back to sport because of, for whatever reason, um, and they felt like they needed a reconstruction. And this really um, blew the, the field um, away really in turn, right around the world and got a lot of media coverage and the initial findings. And they've just recently, well, not that recently actually, um, but published their five-year outcomes and almost up to their 10-year follow-up of these patients. But the, the crux of the message with the, with the initial findings up to two years following their injury, they actually find very little differences between almost all outcomes. So whether that's return to sport. So if you have an ACL reconstruction versus if you don't have an ACL reconstruction and just rehab without having surgery, your chances of going back to any sport, whether it be straight line running or high level, you know, multi-directional, there's no difference from this study and what they found. There's no difference in the amount of pain and symptoms um, between the two groups. And what's also really interesting is there seems to be very little difference in longer term outcomes. So five um, and up to 10 year outcomes in terms of the development of arthritis and pain longer term as well. So I was really fortunate to um, collaborate with this group of researchers when I was over in Europe um, a couple of years ago, where we looked at some um, MRI outcomes um, from this population and looked at early cartilage changes in the two groups and, and really found, again, very few differences um, in the amount of cartilage that people lost after their reconstruction um, or ACL injury. And what we tended to find was actually there was a more um, cartilage loss in the group who had the early reconstruction. So we know that an ACL injury is very traumatic. It's, there's a lot of swelling, the knee gets red, it's sore. It's a very angry knee. But we also know that surgery doesn't, isn't just a benign you know, um, procedure. It uh, drills tunnels into bones. It, it takes some of the hamstring or a, another area of the body, a graft, to reconstruct the knee. The knee's very angry and red and there's a lot of inflammation after reconstruction. And so there's a thought now that perhaps that secondary trauma to the knee is actually more detrimental to the joint um, longer term. And particularly when we know that it's not gonna provide a whole lot of additional benefit in terms of getting people back to sport and um, you know, reducing people's pain, et cetera. So I think at the moment we're at a position where the best evidence suggests we should be encouraging people, and I should mention this is in non-elite athletes as well. I think elite athletes are a different kettle of fish, of course. So in, in non-elite athletes, as physiotherapists in collaboration with um, sports medicine doctors and surgeons, we should really be encouraging um, ACL injured athletes to trial a period of non-operative rehabilitation. Um, I actually don't like the word non-operative because it's indicating a, a need that a non of the other. So we should be calling it, you know, as a modern rehabilitation, the best management we can possibly do because it's conservative also. I think we're underselling um, by saying something's conservative. The patient goes, well, I don't want conservative. I want sexy surgery. I of want course. aggressive. So, I want cutting edge. I want. Exactly. But, but to be honest, the data suggests that the aggressive rehab is actually more possible in those that don't have reconstruction. There's no graft we need to protect. And we can get these players and evidence shows with a really progressive and intensive rehabilitation program without surgery. We can actually get these players back to high level sport within months, you know, within a couple of months, not years. And so I think um, trialing a period of non-operative rehabilitation is, is really important. And it's ensuring that the patient understands the process and we educating them to empower them 
about the possible great outcome with, without surgery. And we know that even if they have surgery later, having a great preoperative rehab um, and getting the knee to a, a really strong position before they have surgery is gonna benefit them after they have surgery if they go down that route anyway. But I think revisiting over a number of months, so I typically say three months initially of rehabilitation, and let's just see what happens. Let's trial three months, really intense progressive rehab. And if you have a symptomatic knee that's keeps swelling, that keeps giving way, you're not able to, you, know, you might be able to run in straight lines, but then when you go and turn directions, your knee gives way and you wanna go back to basketball because that's really important for your life, then let's maybe think about having a reconstruction if you reach that point and it's not a strong, um, stable knee. But I think we need to give ourselves, our patients a chance to do well without surgery because the outcomes um, across the population are very similar. So I almost, I almost tell my patients that you have to prove that your knee's unstable and that you have to prove to me that you need surgery. So let's try a really intense progressive rehab program to start with. And absolutely, there's gonna be some people who benefit greatly with surgery, but it's about trying to find those people who will, who need to have surgery and will not have a good outcome with um, modern physiotherapy management compared to people who will do really well without surgery. And so that's a really difficult crystal ball to have in our hands to know whether people are gonna do well or not without surgery. But there's been some really nice data coming from Scandinavia actually showing that um, the people who are more likely to do well without a reconstruction are older athletes, are people who have who try rehab and um, recover quite quickly, so have good function after initial period of rehab indicates if you're responsive to that rehab, you're gonna keep responding um, without surgery. And also those who um, are female, I think as well. So younger age and female athletes are more likely to do well uh, without having surgery from this from this cohort from Scandinavia. So I think that gives us a little bit of indication of, uh, it helps direct some of our conversations with our athletes um, about potential people who will do well. Sorry, Adam, did you say older or younger was more likely to respond? So um, uh, younger, so older athletes will more likely respond to the non-operative management because they're more likely to have other things going on in their life that will mean that they don't want to go back to you know their elite level basketball or you know that high level they've got kids they you know, not going to try and go back to that same level of sport. Um, but I think I think it really comes back to a really strong relationship with the patient and the surgeon if they've been and seen a surgeon. It's really up to the patient to decide. We can't decide what they have, but we should be empowering the patients with the best available evidence we have. Um, and I think a lot of surgeons in the past have been quite um, sort of emphasizing the need to have reconstruction because of the risk of um, ongoing uh, instability, which then causes maybe more meniscal tears. And we know that a meniscus tear is not good news either. It increases the risk of you know, problems and longer term arthritis. But even the same study I mentioned before that split the two into the two groups um, actually showed no difference um, in the long term about how many people had meniscal tears and went for meniscus surgery. So what, what the, what the, the non-randomised studies typically will say is when you track people over time, they say, oh, the longer you leave, the longer you leave your, uh, until you have your reconstruction, there's more risk of you having a meniscus tear in that knee. 
um, which sort of suggests that we should be having ACL reconstruction very early to try and prevent any meniscus tear. But when you actually look at the data and interrogate it a little bit more, then of course, the people who wait longer to have a reconstruction are gonna have more meniscal tests because they're only going to see a, a surgeon or a physio because they've got problems in their knee that they want fixing. So if you have a back at sport and have no issues without an ACL reconstruction, then you don't have any need to go and see a surgeon. So if you come to the surgeon with pain, you're more likely to have a meniscal tear because you have symptoms and problems, you have the surgery. And of course, there's gonna be a high risk of having a meniscal tear there. So that's sort of the difference of making sure we look at the data in these, in these publications and the benefit of randomizing two, into two different groups and, and um, very even distribution of different types of patients. So I hope that's probably a lot of information in that answer, but I hope I've sort of distilled, yeah, as physios, I think it's a, we're in a really fantastic position to, to offer at least an initial rehabilitation period for them to prove that their knee is unstable and then to go and have a surgical uh, review. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. I've got so many questions. <laughs> Just one quick comment before I ask Andrea something. Um, what I just heard as a summary is we don't know who we don't know about because they don't present as well as, um, you know, the referral bias means that surgeons always see the longer you leave it, the more likely you're going to see a tear. So that referral bias and then the, the, the fallacious reasoning comes into it. I think that's a summary of what you just said. Yeah, and also I think also the initial ACL injury, there's probably a lot of people walking around in the community who have an ACL tear and we're just not knowing about it and they're going fine, most yep. of them. You don't know what you don't know, surgery. right? <laughs> um, so, yeah, yep. No, that's sorry. enough. I've, I've spoken that's enough about too. that. <laughs> I, I was going to ask Andrea if you wanted to comment on any of that stuff before I asked some, some other questions. No, other than just as I was listening to Adam talk about uh, everything that he's just synthesised there is about the power of communication and then empowering the patient and educating them on the surgery versus the, the sexy contemporary alternative um, and then having a really conversation over a bit of time about what it is that's important to them and what they want to achieve and because and maybe returning to the sport that they, in, they injured their knee in isn't actually one of their priorities. Um, and so then that might change the path that they take um, or their life circumstances. If they're a, a young mum with two little kids at home and then, you know, because the, the rehabilitation after a reconstruction, we know it's, in, it's intensive. And I also don't know how many of our patients actually go into surgery knowing how much of a commitment is required from them to have really good outcomes. Um, and, and I might not say too much more about another study that we're running here at La Trobe about, um, you know, optimising and enhancing outcomes after ACLR. That's a great point, Andrea. And I'll just pick up on something you just said, though, around the, the goals, is that not only do patients' goals will differ um, immediately and they might want to get back to basketball once they've injured that knee because it's basketball is really important um, for them. But their goals might change as well. So they've had that ACL injury, that immediate shock and despair that I can't go and play with my friends for another 12 months. They, with a period of rehabilitation, we need to give them the chance that their goals might actually evolve and change and go, actually, now I'm a uni student and I have other interests in life where actually I feel like I'm not, I don't need to go back to basketball or whatever sport that might be. And 
I'm going to do just as well without an ACL reconstruction. So that actually the goals evolve over time. And, and that's another real important reason to not rush into surgery really early, but actually give them the opportunity to respond to yeah, physiotherapy management um, and, and have an ongoing discussion about their goals and, and lifestyle. Yeah, fantastic points. And I just want to sidebar just for a second, really loving the language that I'm hearing, how holistic and considerate it is, um, uh, because it's so easy in ACL reconstruction type discussions to just really get focused on the tissue, right? Like on, hey, you've ruptured a ligament, we're going to put something else there to stop it from moving and we're good to go. But as you both alluded to, there's just so much more to consider, which is fantastic. Um, now, you know, I, I think very simply, I'm a very simple person. Um, to me, the rehab, the rehab is, okay, whether you have an operation or not, uh, the rehab should include maximizing your range of motion with control, strength, power, speed of repetition, be able to maintain and control, change of direction, change of timing, change of speed, unpredictable situations, which includes bumps, shoves, um, noises, stressful situations. Like, is that's the same, right? Like, there's no difference whether you have an operation or not? Essentially, yes, exactly. The beauty without having an operation is you don't have a graft that you have to wait. Yeah. You have to protect it and wait till it matures. Um, and also you don't have the, the burden of the graft site. So whether that's a hamstring tendon, we know that hamstring tears are quite common after you know taking a couple of the tendons for the graft or whether it be a patella tendon where you have quite a bit of anterior knee pain on kneeling, et cetera. So we know that we can be a lot more aggressive in our rehab with patients who don't have a reconstruction, which if someone wants to get back to sport really quickly, which is often the first question these young athletes come to us and say, when can I play again? Um, and that discussion has to be set out from the get-go, right from the start, is um, the evidence suggests you're probably likely to get back to sport sooner without having surgery because you don't have to wait and have that second round of trauma to, to quieten the knee down again and protect the graft. Um, and so there's, there's case studies in the literature where you know, elite um, athletes around the world have got back to full competitive sport, you know, soccer players, within a couple of months um, without any issues, without an ACL. So it's possible. Not everyone will be able to do that. And we don't have a crystal ball to predict those that will do well and those that don't, as I mentioned. But I think giving the people, giving these athletes the opportunity to do well, we have a responsibility to do that in my mind because every surgery comes with risks. Um, you know, infection rates, for example, you know, are relatively low, but they do happen. Cyclops lesions, we know, is a big, you know, um, again, relatively rare, but a big problem to have um, in about 5% of patients who have a reconstruction. Um, so they're going to have to go and have another arthroscope. Do you want to just uh, explain the cyclops lesion for our listeners, Adam? Thanks. Sure. A cyclops lesion is a relatively rare complication of an ACL reconstruction in about 5% of cases. And it's a, an atherofibrosis buildup of tissue um, at the anterior part of the graft between the tibia and the femur. So typical, and it's typically will affect the, um, interrupt the patient's rehabilitation. They complain of pain, stiffness, 
um, et cetera. And so one of the telltale signs following an ACL reconstruction of a cyclops lesion is the inability to fully extend the knee. So like a real mechanical block because there is a lump of tissue that's formed at the front of the knee and we just can't get past, past that. So, um, and it's a typically an indication to go and have surgery to remove that. Um, there's no guarantee that that's not gonna come back again. Um, but as physios, it's something that we um, won't really be able to overcome without you know, mechanically removing the, the block in the knee. So relatively rare, but important to keep in the back of the mind if you're just having a patient that's not able to get terminal extension despite lots of your efforts. Yeah, okay. Um, oh, you know, one of the things that I love <laughs> Um, oh, I just love this topic. My head is just full of questions. Uh, one of the things that I really do try to spread awareness of is that physios are really good at certain parts of rehab. And then the last part, change of direction, change of timing, unpredictable situations, high level movement patterns, strength and conditioning. Um, you know, these are, these are things that are often almost there. Nah, I've done my, I got you through the first three months type thing, you know, um, I, I, I just really want to encourage our peers um, and other health professionals and fitness professionals to work together because there's so much we could do. And I love, I always put it to the performance enhancement, right? I say, number one, most people don't finish rehab because we don't take them to that high level finishing. And number two, like what you said, you want to kick further, you want to run faster, you want to jump higher. This is what physios do. We are legal performance enhancers. So along with all the other coaches, I'm a coach, you see. So along with all the other coaches, um, we can do so much with you. Um, I was going to say with the rehab, Andrea, are there any particular um, considerations for female athletes? Um, or you can comment on what I just said. <laughs> Yeah, no, I was going to, sorry, just to follow on what you what you were saying about getting past the three months and getting up to that six and nine month. That's the fun part. That's where you can start really doing all the plyometrics and the, un, the change of direction and the unanticipated changes. And, you know, you can bring all your balls in and you're getting, pre preparing your athletes to return to, you know, to sport. And I suppose it's those also acknowledging the different phases of returning to sports, you know, that returning to activity and there's returning to training you know, your modified training, then full training. And then also, okay, you might be ready to play a game, but you might actually not be up to, you know, your pre-injury performance. And so again, acknowledging those different phases as you're returning through that pathway. But um, yeah, let's keep our athletes with us and challenge them and, and make uh, rehab fun because that's the interesting time. Um, well, uh, sorry. Yeah, sorry. Also, oh, I was just going to add to that, um, Andrea, just in my experience too of working with people who have done like a, a, they've done rehab, like what Anthony said, they've done a couple of months and they've gone, oh, often done. And then you see them later down the track. And so many of those people don't go back to sport because they just don't have the confidence. And they often have, you know, if they've, especially if they've injured it during that particular sport, but that ability in rehab to be able to do all those things with them just gives them so much confidence because if we've, yeah, like you said, thrown things at them, they're jumping twisting landing in the air pushing off you you know you have them practicing all that stuff they have so much more confidence in their body and we don't want them going back to sport with fear like i need to protect this knee 
oh my God, what if it goes again? Um, like you want them to go out and focus on the game and the ball and what's happening and the people around them, not thinking I need to protect this, this knee and I'm scared. And your anecdotal stories of, of Anthony and yourself, America, are backed up by evidence. So there was actually a study from Perth um, a few years ago now where they surveyed a lot of um, patients and physios who had involved with ACL rehab. And less than 5% of ACL reconstructed patients receive rehab that lasts at least six months and incorporates return to sport specific and strengthening training. So less than 5%. So that just backs up exactly what you're saying. And I think it's often a challenge, although it's fun, as Andrew mentioned, it's often a challenge in our environment, particularly in our health system, where people are paying quite a lot of money to come and see us in clinics. And they get to a stage where they can run pain-free and they feel like, well, that's enough. You know, I'll just be able to go and do the rest myself and uh, not realising how important that in-stage rehab is. And I try and have obviously discussions with patients about this, but one of the, the things I try and feed into them is that you had an ACL injury initially, the way your knee was. So why don't we take this opportunity to get your knee bigger, better, stronger than what it was actually before you injured it? Because you had an ACL injury then, you, we know you're more at risk of a second ACL injury. So let's actually take this time to you know, reduce the risk of further injuries by getting you much stronger than what you were before you had the injury. And then that comes back to the performance aspect, of course, as well to increase the performance. But I think that's a really important education, um, empowering of patients and ability for them to know the journey right from the outset. So thinking about return to sport in the very first conversation and the journey to get there so that they have, they have the expectations that align with you as a therapist, I think is vital. And or certainly whatever activity it is that recreational leisure activity that they want to return to, you know, it may not be competitive sport and that's okay. Um, but we still want to ensure that we're giving them or optimising their recovery and also then reducing any associated burden. And spe special considerations for the um, female athlete uh in that recovery, like you said, they they may uh they may choose to have other goals. But, you know, there's nothing wrong with maximising it. Um, yeah, look, know. there's not a lot of research out there that has really focused and, and uh, on what should be different. Um, and uh, that's sort of an area that we want to actually, um, you know, do some more trials on here at Latrobe and sort of getting an understanding of how maybe our rehabilitation programs need to differ. You know, there's been a lot of, I think we've already covered it and alluded to it, that there's a lot of, um, research that's focused on including a male population and that's still happening within the last few years we're still having predominantly male populations or there might be representative of one female or they might be setting exclusion hormones and periods and it's also complicated <laughs> oh no I've got I've got a new one for you there was an exclusion criteria because females have lower physical activity um, rates that was why they were excluded from an ACL study in the last few years. So we're not even talking 20 years ago. Um, so until that, and that is changing, we're getting a lot more research in that area. Probably some uh, from a little bit of, you know, recent research sort of starting to, and again, probably just reaffirming what we already suspect is that we need social supports in place and the role of the physiotherapist or the health professionals 
recognizing that there's also, you know, your exercise physiologists and if you're part of a sporting team, strength and conditioning coaches and how important they can be in, in supporting the player through all of those different phases. Um, and then also not, if they are part of a team sport, is still having them around the club if they want to be. And, um, you know, setting those expectations of, okay, you might be doing your rehab, but you're actually going to come down to training getting them still involved in other parts. So on game day, they might have a role um, that they take on that's relevant for the team. So they still feel part of the culture of the club because that has such great mental health benefits. You know, the role of that social connectedness and inclusion, um, you know, it's, that's, part, that's the, the benefits of social or sport, of that participation and engagement with others. So, so important. And I just want to put in something just real quick in here. One of the, the hardest things to hear from any athlete is when they're told that they're not allowed to go back to their CrossFit gym or their personal training sessions or their F45 or their whatever it is, boot camp, uh, Pilates class, yoga class, cycle class, you know, it, it's, it's almost disrespectful of fitness professionals professionals to think that just because someone's got a broken ankle you can't do any sort of training you know um and it's so important I, sorry that's one of my one of my bugbears one of the things that gets me going andrea so it's actually interesting you say that there's a there's actually a study from scandinavia i keep bringing up scandinavia but they're great researchers over there where they actually had a group of they tried a group of people who not to have surgery and a group of people who did have surgery after acl injury and they told the group who didn't have the surgery, just don't go back to that high level basketball because we think it might you know, damage your knee. So just don't go back to that pivoting type sport. Whereas the reconstruction one, they said, you can go and do anything because you've had a reconstruction and it's great. So even their treatment program was sort of biased towards not going back to full sport. But what happened, the participants actually ignored that advice and went back without an ACL injury to basketball and football anyway, and did really well. They didn't have any problems, most of them. And so even when we tell people not to go back to these high level sports without an ACL, they can disregard that and have a great outcome. So I think that just feeds into the picture that we should be encouraging and talking to patients as much as we can to get what out of life they want to get up. And we're there to support them in any way we can. And I suppose also trying to work out what, what the barriers are for the fitness professionals that they don't want those people to return you know why are they are they fearful of that they're going to injure themselves and then it's the liabilities on them so then I suppose starting to then just increase the communication and let them know well if you're if you're worried if that's the worry then get the physio or the treating health professional to do a handover and be really clear about what the individual can do and can't do and allow them back in, which is why I was saying it's a return to activity, then return to sport and what does sport look like? So it's the whole sort of pathway. Yeah, we do know that females following ACL injury and reconstruction will typically have at a general population level, not as good an outcome compared to men. That's what the literature says, unfortunately. And we don't really know the reason for that yet, but they typically don't recover to the same level of um, you know, pain, they still have ongoing pain more so than men. Um, and they also don't return to the same level of sport um, or that yeah, the, the rates of return to sport aren't as high in women as they are in men. And there's, as Andrew alluded to, there's probably a lot of contextual factors that feed into that. Um, 
But I think that's something, as Andrea mentioned, we're looking into about how can we maximise and optimise the rehab for these um, athletes who, um, you know, the women don't typically have as good an outcome at a general level compared to the men. And uh, sorry, just to go on to that, and certainly some of the the literature is coming out that um, we don't uh, females don't return to um, vigorous intensity physical activity, all that, and we don't know the the reasons for it. But there's there is that change from a team sport to an individual sport, whether that's around the fear um, of returning to team sport or fear of yeah returning to the sport where they've sustained their ACL injury and they don't want to have another one of those again because they now know what that's all about. Um, but yes, as Adam said, the inferior outcomes for females, a lot around um, yeah, the sport and recreation and quality of life as well. But we need to, to unpack that more and, and certainly do more research in that space, which we're hoping to do. I'm going to jump in before Anthony does because <laughs> we're, both, we're both a bit excited. I, um, just a question on uh, sort of re-injury rates, because you alluded to the fact that um, having one ACL injury makes you more susceptible to another. Um, is that regardless of whether or not you have surgery? Uh, so if you have surgery, obviously you have a graft that can re-rupture. Mm-hmm. Um, where if you don't have surgery, you, you already oh, you have a ruptured have ACL graft. Yeah. Sorry, that's a stupid but, question. But... <laughs> No, no, no. If we unpack that a little bit more, <laughs> I guess I was thinking about, more collapsing, collapsing knee kind of situation. Yes. Yeah. So in terms of that, that ACL injured or reconstructed knee, there's no difference in terms of further meniscal um, damage or other ligament damage. So that's not an issue. Um, but also, as I mentioned earlier, once you have the ACL injury, it increases the risk of a second ACL injury, and that includes the other other knee. Yep. So a lot of the people we see and some of our studies where we're recruiting patients is they tell us they've had three ACL reconstructions, two on one knee and, and one on another. That's very, very common. Um, and so we know that once you have the ACL, your initial ACL injury, then it's more you're more at risk of having the other one rupture as well. And so whether that's you know genetic, whether that's a family history, there's probably little bits adding into that. Um, but also it probably relates more so to the exposure to sport. So if you're sitting on the couch at home uh, reading a book, you're unlikely to rupture your ACL. But if you're someone who's very sporty and derive a lot of pleasure and self-worth from sport, then you're more likely to want to go back to sport and then you're putting your knee into those situations um, where other players come across you, which is, of course, more risky for injury compared to if you're sitting at home reading a book. So we really, when we're looking at these types of data in, the, in publications, you really need to take into account the exposure, which is the, the amount of time and the activities that we're doing that puts our knee um, into these dangerous situations potentially. So I think, so from, from a statistical point of view, I think the, the rate of a second ACL injury after the first one is about 30% in young athletes less than 20 which is often the period of time where they have your first initial ACL. So that's quite a lot, I would say, and quite alarming that one in three people who have one ACL in their adolescent years or early 20s will have another ACL injury in their lifetime, um, which goes back to the, our discussion earlier around the need to you know, do that high-level end-stage rehab to try and prevent those injuries from occurring again. Um, the rates go down a little bit as we get older, but it probably comes back to the fact that the older people have families, work commitments, contextual factors. That means they're not going back to that same high level of sport. So the evidence suggests it's not so much the age 
per se that increases your risk. But when you're younger, you're more likely to go back to sport and then be exposed to more potentially risky situations to, to re-rupture a, a second ACL. We just, I think we both have one more question. Eight. Is that all right? <laughs> no, it's been a great yeah. discussion. It's, I'm glad you're so excited. And oh, excited we love this, this field. Stuff. <laughs> oh, well, like, I, think, I feel I like we could get you back, you know, um, for, for round two. But Marika, you us, asked first. Yeah, we just love spreading this message because we, you know, obviously have a reach in Australia and um, overseas too. I think it's really hard to get some of the information from our from our, you know, journals that are coming out, like even as a physio, we, we read quite a lot. And we listen to things and we, like I work in a sports medicine clinic, you know, it's really hard to keep on top of, of the research. So we love giving this opportunity to get the researchers in and go like, just give us a summary. It's, it's great. It's, um, it's very efficient. Thank you. Um, I just had one more question. It was about the teenage athlete who has an ACL injury. And I know this is really quite, um, it's a really tricky subject just to do with, you know, growth plates and, um, when, you know, what is a time that's appropriate to do it? And obviously what I'm hearing again and again today is, you know, we start with conservative anyway, but what about those kids who really do have that unstable collapsing knee? They've done the rehab. What is the sort of minimum age or minimum thing we want to look at on a, on a scan before they think about having a RICO? It's not, it's not conservative management, Marika, anymore, is it? It's uh, Sorry, it's high-level aggressive rehab. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Cutting edge, cutting edge. <laughs> cutting edge, state of the art. Um, it's a really complex area, and I think where, you know, we see a lot of um, kids, even down to 9, 10, 11, you know, 12-year-olds having an ACL injury, and it's really devastating for them and the parents, obviously, as well. I wouldn't say there's a particular minimum age. I'm not an orthopedic surgeon, obviously. Um, so I preface it with that. We often worry about growth disturbances and not reconstructing a knee during growth. But the reality is growth disturbances are actually pretty rare in young people who have an ACL reconstruction. There's a lot of different surgical techniques that we can use that don't um, violate the growth plates. Um, so that's uh, one aspect of it. There's some uh, nice longitudinal data. So about a, a group of about 100 um, adolescent athletes who all suffered an ACL injury. And this research group in Norway followed them for about, um, about 10 years, I think, up until they were 18 years old to work out what happened to their knees. Did they have surgery? Did they go back to sport? Did they um, re-rupture, et cetera? And the, the overlying conclusion from that work is that kids do really well without having a reconstruction as long as they're happy to adapt their sporting and physical activity. So the kids that and adolescents who have an ACL rupture and seek pleasure in finding another sport that's not that level one high impact, cutting, pivoting, basketball, twisting, et cetera, then they have less chance of having a meniscus tear, obviously, which damages the knee further, which is a bit of a worry but they also do really well from a quality of life, um, pain, symptoms, um, outcome point of view as well. If, if again, I think, you know, trialing you know, physiotherapy management in these patients, um, at least until they get to, you know, finish growing um, is often what's typically done in the, in the, in the clinical world with surgeons anyway, um, that's sort of 17, 18 at least. And then that gives them enough time to say, well, let's actually, you know, build your strength up with rehab. And if we get to that point and you need a reconstruction, you know, we can follow that path, but it's pretty 
it's pretty devastating to hear as a kid who, as I said, I was a football player and, you know, I had a lot of self-worth and, and peer support and friends from being good at sport. And so when you take that away, it's very hard to convince, you know, young kids and adolescents and their parents that you shouldn't go back to what you loved before. So again, it's that education and, and um, discussion with them and their families um, that certainly it's possible to have a reconstruction, uh, but there's no guarantee that, you know, they're going to have a good outcome as well because you, you're reconstructing a knee that's small, but they haven't finished growing. So if you put a graft in that's the right size at when they're 13, it doesn't necessarily mean it's the right size when they're 22. And so how that graft evolves over time, we don't really know. Um, there's also some interesting work. Some surgeons I work with have started taking a graft from their parents. So they're so it's a more mature graft where they take a hamstring graft and so they donate their hamstring to their child. Um, so they both go in for surgery, which I don't know how, ma how much research has been done in the outcomes of that technique specifically, but I know there's a few cases of that happening as well. But it is a, I probably haven't answered your question very well. I've just sort of skirted around the edges, but it's a really complex um, area that I think it's important to have discussion with the child and the, and the parents, obviously, as well. So, so going on from that, it's, I suppose, the, the benefits of have, making sure our, our children and adolescents are getting a diverse opportunity to play lots of different sports so that, you know, they're, they're, all their eggs isn't in just one basket. So if football is, you know, potentially taken away from them, they've got other things that they love, that they're okay and they can still have a really fulfilling life playing other sports. Um, you know, if we're thinking about some of these athletes who are sustaining ACL injuries and um, early on in their, you know, life. Yeah. Oh, awesome. It just brings to mind, you know, just what the other thing that I think of is that while kids have got growth plates, you can actually change rotations in their legs. But anyway, that's a different topic. Um, <laughs> Because uh, I, I did want to touch on the anatomical stuff. We don't have time. Um, I want to ask just, uh, I, I'll just summarize what's in my head first. I want to ask you about injury prevention, particularly for females. And then we'll sum up because, you know, we have to finish and it sucks that we have to finish. Okay, so real quick, in my head, super strong, super strong muscles appropriately right so gradual progression don't overload everything don't go too quick too fast but, but in particular super strong hamstrings not just in the sagittal plane but also into rotations at the knee because the knee rotates being able to control that um, you know a strong hip in whatever position it is closed chain open chain not neglecting the quads of course um, and then also not just slow lifting, right? So not just heavy squats, but we're talking about powerful explosions, plyometrics, contact. In terms of injury, like, I mean, that's the rehab that I have in my head. In terms of injury prevention, I think the same way, but you know, you two are the, uh, you two are the much, much more informed people than me. Uh, how do we prevent injuries, uh, particularly for the female athlete? In, of all ages. Can I just add also context? So whether, um, and type of sport as well, so that yes, movement patterns and all of those lower limb muscle groups that you've mentioned are important, but also then thinking about technique. Um, we haven't talked about in this podcast, but 
uh, concussion is a high, there's a higher rate of concussion rates among women compared to men. And we believe that some of that is also about the way that they're going into to a contest. Um, so then we actually need to bring that into our, our skills training and injury prevention programs um, and trying to take a holistic view that it's not just the exercises, but it's also about, um, you know, what's going on in life around you? Are you having enough sleep? How does nutrition even come into play? Um, so it's, 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 it is, it's holistic. And I know we've used that language before, but it's about the whole person um, in, in injury prevention. Totally suits our biases. Yeah, um, and not trying, I suppose, identify as who is at risk, but everyone should get the program um, and put our energy there. And then, yes, we should all have a good understanding of our athletes and their past histories because they might need a little top up or a little bit extra here or there um again we've alluded to that uh, if you've had an acl injury you know you're at risk of a hamstring injury and certainly from some of the studies that we've done um, in female athletes and we've done with, with the aflw we're talking about you know years past their acl reconstruction they've got still weaker hamstrings um, and we assume that they've gone through an intensive ACL rehab program, including hamstrings, but we need to make sure that that's being uh, suitably targeted during our programs as well. Um, Adam, did you want to add anything? No, I was just going to go back to your no, go back to your initial point, Anthony. And I think they, the two don't look that different. The the injury prevention programs and a good rehab program after the injury probably actually look quite similar in reality. Um, it's addressing the muscle impairments, addressing any obvious movement impairments as best we can, but really getting people as strong as we can. We know that um, muscle strength and the way neuromuscular control um, in these programs is very successful at preventing injuries. Um, and that's the core tenant of our ACL rehabilitation programs as well. And I think we can make it more interesting by getting into, you know, sports specific um, injury prevention and rehab as well. So we had a patient coming the other day, for example, that was a really high level judo athlete. And he has had a post-reconstruction two years, was having a, a really good um, crack at his judo, was still having some, some fear and confidence issues in certain movements. So we've sort of put him on a path where you actually get into those positions, those really awkward judo positions, and start strengthening and moving your knee in those positions where you're not comfortable to build the strength, like really very sport-specific for him. So I think if – and then patients feel like they're, they're being listened to and it's not just a generic program – oh, you're really getting where I'm struggling and then they buy into it as well, which I think helps adherence and long-term outcomes, of course, as well. Yeah, I've, I've had people lying on my floor doing BJJ with knee issues and, you know, it's like, okay, you can't do this move. I don't know the move, but you're going to do it on me and, oh, you get pain here. And like, you know, like you said, is that individualization of trying to, and holy moly, BJJ hurts, by the way, especially when they kneel on the inside thigh. Oh, my God, the pain. But anyway. Um, I, I guess the, the difficulty here is it takes time. And yeah. if you're one physio to 30 athletes, how do you do that? And that's the difficult thing. Um, as much as we want to try and individualise it, so how, how can we best do that with the time that we have and the resources that we have? Because we also acknowledge that different sporting settings will have very minimal people on the ground. Yeah, and not everybody has a club to pay for their physio and their rehab and for the duration, right? So it, it's like we mentioned earlier, that balance between the finances and 
how we frame it and how we even look at ourselves as um, where we fit in the rehab journey for them. Um, and I always just want to encourage everybody just to work together. Um, so look, it's been a fantastic podcast. Um, I have the unenviable task of summarizing everything. So please correct me if I get anything wrong. But, um, you know, we started off with what the ACL is and, and um, we talked about a bit about that. We talked about the um, prevalence, about some of the risk factors. We talked about some of the uh, female specific risk factors, the contextual factors, right? So the AFLW in particular, where you do a lot of work, but just the rise of female sport court and field sport and the professionalism that's going into it and talking about how there's like even been that gap of okay you can play up until 12 and then you got to go do other things until you can play as an adult again um just missing out on some of that developmental uh getting used to how you tackle how you take a tackle and even bringing that in full circle with concussion like they're going in to go get the ball and they're putting their head in positions which may increase the risk of concussion, which is what I think I took from that point. Um, so, you know, that, that motor patterning of high-level sports, the, I suppose, the struggle that we have because we do have injury prevention programs which have been shown to be really useful and helpful, not just general injury, but knee-specific programs as well. But the the difficulty in translating that to uptake and um, adherence and, and talking about some of the ideas of how to discuss that, but also um, for the athlete to take ownership for, for um, because we would love for the clubs to lead from the top. That's a lot harder to do as anybody who's worked in the club has known. Um, so, you know, having the athlete take that um, and seeing it as legal performance enhancement uh because as we said the rehab if you do have an injury actually looks very similar to the prevention stuff the motor control the strength and i always want to emphasize whenever we talk about strength we're also thinking about the application of that strength in a very quick way which is power um, and then the speed of repetition having to do it over and over again so that's super important and often gets missed because people will, yeah, yeah, I did my squats. And it's like, yeah, but did you move the bar at 0.8 meters per second? Like, did you actually exert power? Um, so, yeah. Uh, and then we also talked about, we touched on and, and you alluded to decreasing the osteoarthritis, the, you can go the traditional old fashioned way of having an operation rather than the sexy cutting edge way of actually not having an operation, getting back to your sport sooner, improving your performance and getting back to the things that have more meaning for you with the cutting edge programs and the cutting edge research that backs it up, particularly from La Trobe University. Um, <clears throat> and having, um, having a view that, hey, maybe three months would be a good trial period. Don't rush straight into it because we think maybe the secondary trauma of drilling into the bone and, and the operative techniques necessary to do the operation may actually cause increased cartilage loss 
particularly if it's done earlier. Um, and uh, you alluded to trying to decrease because if you have an operation or not, the rate of arthritis is actually pretty similar. The 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 uh, the joint degeneration, the cartilage um, wear and tear, I suppose, uh, as well as uh, you know looking forward to changing um, the societal expectations, the way that we message it, the considerations of more than just the tissues in the issues. And wow, how have I gone? Yeah. Right. Pretty good summary there, Anthony. Well done. <laughs> and we're going to have to let these amazing people oh, go because they've to a meeting. Uh, are you doing research now? Something. Yeah, collecting yeah. data, I think you said. Collecting data. Okay. They've, both, yeah. Yeah, they've both got to run. So we'll, we will wrap it up there. But I just wanted to say before we go, um, massive thank you massive. to both Dr. Adam Kalvener and Dr. Andrea Bruder. And if people want to get in touch with you or want to know more about your research, what's the best way um, that they can do that? Yeah, so we have a, a blog. Actually, our Latrobe Research Centre have a blog. So it's semrc.latrobe.edu.au. And then um, we have a large a number of research projects going on at our centre. So if you any anyone who's interested in being involved in research or you're a patient um, with an ACL injury and want to find out more, the best way to contact us is at the email aclstudy at latrobe.edu.au. And um, we'll be able to get back to you and yeah, pass you on to the best person within our centre. That's, that's wonderful. And we'll put that all in the show notes too. Yeah, yeah and no, our centre really also has a, a Twitter handle and we're on Facebook and both Adam and I have, you know, scholar profiles. We're pretty easy to find, I think. Yeah, we encourage everybody to look up your research. Thank you very much for your time. And if you're listening and you want to hear more from these two brilliant, not just researchers, but clinicians, they're, they're on the front lines, um, let us know and we'll get them back if they're willing to come back. We hope you've enjoyed your time on the podcast. Really enjoyed it. Uh, thank you very much. Thank Thanks you for having us. us. Thank you. Great. Well, that's it for this episode. Be sure to hit like if you enjoyed the episode and leave any comments or questions below. We'd really like to hear from you. If you haven't already hit subscribe, please do so now so that you can be kept notified when we release our next episode. Otherwise, thank you for listening and we look forward to having you back with us for another episode of the Women's Health Podcast.